0: This is a No Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and this morning I'm joined by Steve Gordon, a Microsoft MVP, an organizer of the .NET Southeast Meetup Group in the United Kingdom, and a software developer at Magix. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your morning, Steve. Uh, hey, Brian. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me to, to join you. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah. So as you
1: say, Microsoft MVP as of last year, which was a really exciting uh, event in my life. Um, and then In my day job, I work for Magix and we do uh, mainly software as a service products for our clients. Um, We're probably best known for our job board platform, which is uh, an enterprise level uh, sort of digital job board solution used by people like The Guardian and The Telegraph, Washington Post. So they run their sort of online recruitment services through that. And uh, as part of that, I get to kind of work with uh, lots of new things. I've been on the new product team for the last couple of years and and recently have just sort of become part of the data products team. So we get to do a lot of stuff with .NET Core and microservices and AWS services and things like that, which is all sort of the bleeding edge stuff that you want to be playing with. And uh, that means I get to, to, to write about all of that stuff in my blog as well, which is which is great. Um, and then sort of outside of the day job, uh, running the meetup group kind of t- takes up a bit of my time and contributing to things like some open source projects. So I'm particularly uh, sort of big contributor to a project called um, Already, which is run by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Um, and that sort of is another ASP.NET Core 2.0 project. So, another chance to kind of play with all the new bits there.
0: Where, for people in the UK, where exactly is your meetup group? Uh, so, it's in
1: Brighton, uh, which is where I work. So, we host it actually at the Magix offices in Brighton. Um, so, it's easily accessible from sort of a lot of the nearby towns by train and road.
0: And then, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the humanitarian toolbox? Yeah,
1: so I've been sort of involved on and off for a couple of years now. It started just as a a gentle dip of my toe into open source, first ever open source contribution. And uh, I've been doing it since then. And and what they do is they're looking to build uh, open source software for use by charities, basically, mostly humanitarian relief charities. And they want to kind of do this in a sustainable way. So it's not just kind of a, a one-off code event that means that they've got some software and then they get left looking after it a humanitarian toolbox sort of want to own the the software life cycle so keep that keep that up to date keep that managed and even less, and maybe host that for them in azure for example uh, so we've been working on already for a couple of years now which is around sort of disaster preparedness so uh, organizations like the red cross for example can use that to manage campaigns of activities in advance of potential disasters, so that they're kind of ready and prepared to deal with those in the best way possible.
0: Today, we're going to talk mainly about HTTP clients and the new HTTP client factory that's coming in .NET Core 2.1. But to start off, though, let's talk a little bit about the existing, the current HTTP client uh, that's available with Framework or with, uh, with Core. There are some problems with it. So can you explain those, please, Steve?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the library itself is, is is great, but the ways you can use it are not necessarily fully clear. And it's very easy to go down the wrong route with them. For example, um, HTTP client itself implements disposable, And so many developers would be forgiven for thinking that they should do the right thing there and, and wrap that in some kind of using statement whenever they want to uh, make HTTP calls so that the, the underlying resources are cleaned up properly. Um, but doing that Uh, will mean that you end up with many, many connections being made from your client application, particularly if it's on a a hot path, because every time you open or create a new HTTP client, you're going to get a new connection uh, made for you on the operating system. And where that really becomes a problem is, as I say, on hot paths, if you're doing that often, when you think you've released the resource because you've disposed of HTTP client, the, the connection sort of remains there just in case any remaining packets kind of trickle across the network to you. And so, if you're opening and closing many, many of these in a row, um, sort of in a loop, for example, or maybe on uh, a controller, if you're sort of making your own requests out to external services on a controller on an API, uh, it's very easy to get to a point where you might actually exhaust all of the available sockets on that host machine. And at that point, you'll just get a socket exception and you won't be able to make any more calls to any external services. So, uh, it's something you really do have to watch out for um, uh, in terms of using it.
0: How many suckers would you say you'd have to use up before you hit this exhaustion?
1: Uh, I don't know exactly. I mean, mm. I, I think you've got around, six, it's in the number of ports on a machine. So I think there's something like 64,000 ports, but, but you know, many of those are already in use by the OS and other underlying services. So you'd know, you you'd have to be a fairly heavy user. Um, but if you've got an application that's accepting you know, many tens of requests a second and each time you happen to make a new HTTP client, um, I guess it wouldn't be long before you'd find yourself in a position where you've run out.
0: But what about if I just use a, a singleton to to create my HTTP client? Yes, yeah, so in one instance now. Is that going to reuse ports for me, or is that going to do? Is it still going to be a pain?
1: Yeah, it will do. So that's kind of the traditional way of getting around this problem is is to move towards a singleton HTTP client. So some people do that with making it kind of a static member on one of their classes and then consuming it from there, or maybe register HTTP client in DI as a singleton so you can get get at it that way. Um, and that does somewhat solve that problem because it means now you're reusing the connections. Every request you make to, to your host is going to go over the existing connection pool that you've got underneath you. Um, and you, yeah, you've solved that problem. Unfortunately, you do open yourself up to a new problem, which is that those underlying connections don't honor DNS updates. So um, now you've got this problem that you've got these connections that are essentially open permanently or indefinitely on the on the host machine. Um, when you make your first request to a host, uh, you're going to get a, an IP address eventually back, and that gets cached underneath, uh, sort of down the bottom layer of the handlers. And then you're in a position that if anything changes that you're talking to, so if, if that underlying server that you were chatting to has no longer living there on that IP address, which is quite possible now in sort of microservice environments or when you're dealing with kind of cloud services that are shifting things around all the time. Often they're doing that with DNS and they're just kind of updating short-lived TTLs on the DNS entries to move things around. Um, But it's very possible your connection is still talking to something that either is no longer there or isn't the current version of the thing that you want to be talking to. Um, So you sort of you've solved one problem but ended up creating another.
0: But I remember reading about this some years back, and uh, I wrote a blog post in October last year discussing this. So it was the whole problem of socket exhaustion, and okay, great, great, I'll use my singleton. Now I've solved that, and then I came across the issue of the DNS. Um, So I used the service point manager dot find service point, and I set a 60 second timeout. And what that that piece of code does is, it says that for this um, remote DNS, sorry, for this remote server, this entry of the DNS is valid for a minute. And after that minute, off I go and check it again. So that solves my problem, doesn't it? Uh, It does in full framework. Um, Unfortunately,
1: .NET Core... Um, so, you know, sort of a bit of history of .NET Core. Obviously, in one zero, .NET Core came out um, as quite a reduced API surface, um, and there's a lot. There was a lot of stuff missing at that time, and things have improved. So, with with .NET Standard, we've now got a much more uh, kind of feature rich API that's much closer to full framework. Um, and Service Point Manager is technically there in .NET Standard 2.0, but in in .NET Core, it's actually not implemented, so you, I think it just no ops underneath you. So you can't rely on Service Point Manager for managing the kind of the underlying connection lifetimes,
0: unfortunately. Also, oh, it, it no ops as opposed to throwing and not implemented. So I would assume that it's working, though it's not.
1: I I, I don't know for sure, but I know <laughs> there's bits of it in there that uh, I think have no op comments against them. Um, at a, a minimum, you should get a, a an exception thrown. I would hope, but um, I think it does depend. I think it's one of those things of trying to make .NET Standard kind of uh, not do the, well, to be available to you, but not blow up in your face as often as possible.
0: What would one do now prior to the release of 2.1? Is there any way of handling this combination of Singleton, DNX expiration?
1: Not easily. I mean, you you could certainly do it yourself. So you could add some kind of pooling of of HTTP clients or handlers yourself so that you can get those refreshed periodically, um, maybe dependent on the service you're calling. You know, you know, this one might change this often. So I want to make sure I refresh the connections to it. Um, But you would be doing a lot of plumbing code in order to do that correctly. Um, Certainly it's something... For the stuff we've been using, we've, we've used uh, kind of a Singleton HTTP client for a while. And we've kind of just got away with the fact that the DNS might be a problem. Um, Our services aren't sort of living all that long. And we tend to let them, because we're now in Docker container world, we can just sort of let those things die fairly often and restart. But um, it's, it's certainly been a sort of concern at the back of our mind in terms of do we need to build something out up until 2.1 at least.
0: All right, so 2.1 um, will introduce a thing called the HUB Client Factory, but 2.1's not available just yet. So we're, before we talk about that, when can we expect it? Uh,
1: so we've got a preview at the moment. So we're into preview two as of a couple of weeks ago, I think it was released. Um, and this should be pretty much the final kind of preview before we go to Release Candidate. Um, I don't actually know dates, but with build coming around the corner in a couple of weeks, I'm fairly confident that we probably would expect an announcement on at least the release candidate dates by that point. Um, and hopefully if there's no major issues been found in the previews, that should then sort of move very quickly through to hopefully a release. Um, I think it was sort of originally slated as roughly June when they, um, they, when they did talk about it a while ago.
0: All right. So let's talk about the, the main topic for today. What is the HTTP client factory?
1: Http client factory looks to solve a few a few problems. Uh, I, I guess the the main thing that it's doing for you, if you're worried about the the sort of issue of uh, singleton http client factory, sorry http client and um, sort of DNS lifetimes, is it it does somewhat solve that problem for you by doing a rotation of handlers. So all of that piece that I said you'd have to do yourself in terms of you know writing all this code that would um, sort of cycle handlers, cycle connections and things for you, it does internally. Um, and the way it does that is it, it's basically a, a factory of HTTP clients, so you can ask it for a, a client and it will give you a new client and then it will use a pool of HTTP client handlers or HTTP message handlers underneath that it's gonna cycle through and hand over to that HTTP client when it creates it. Uh, And by default, it's doing a kind of rotation every two minutes on those. So, at worst case, you're going to be kind of two minutes behind before you get a a new underlying connection to the things that you've been talking to. And so, you're starting to solve that problem of DNS there because you're you're refreshing those connections. But you're not doing it as often as you would be if you were just newing up a HTTP client yourself every few seconds, for example. And so, you can just ask the client for an instance of HTP client fact, sorry, ask the factory for an instance of HTTP client. Uh, and then when you get that new instance, you can just sort of use that knowing that it's it's using a, a fairly clean connection to the server that you're talking to.
0: Is this process heavy? Because you know, you're talking about creating a new instance every time.
1: Uh, so the HTTP client itself is a pretty lightweight wrapper. So you, you'll get a new instance of that every time, but the handlers underneath, which are the bit that's hanging onto the connections um, and doing sort of TLS handshakes, that kind of thing, um, will live around for around two minutes or so. So yes, you're still creating those, but it's kind of that that middle ground and you can configure that lifetime as well. So if, if you don't feel that you need it to recycle that every two minutes, you can, you can set it up to be five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever's suitable for the service that you're talking to. So maybe that you're quite happy kind of with a longer delay in refreshing those connections and potentially refreshing if DNS changes underneath you.
0: From a, let's say, a, a practical perspective, where do I create my HTTP client factory inside my code?
1: So it's it's all kind of nicely integrated with the dependency injection framework. Um, so the Microsoft extensions DI that kind of comes with ASP.NET Core. Um, and so the the simplest usage of this is just registering it with add HTTP client in the configure services method um, and as soon as you do that that's going to kind of light up all of the underlying services that it's going to use to um, kind of do the connection pooling and things like that um, and then when you want to actually consume that and you actually just need a HTTP client instance you just instead now ask for a HTTP client factory to be injected into your code so, the sort of the initial use case is if you've got a, a code base and you just want to kind of plumb this in wherever you're already kind of newing up your own clients or managing your own clients, instead just inject HTTP client factory or IHTTP client factory into your constructor and then use the create client method on there to, to get access to a client. And that's its kind of most basic mode. It's not really too intelligent at this point, but it's just giving you access to new HTTP clients with that underlying managed handlers.
0: So but I, I want to be able to tell them apart. I mean, let's say I've got multiple things I'm interested in. Remote service A, remote service B, remote service C. How do I do how do I get my factory to distinguish between each of those?
1: So this is where they've introduced there's two kind of concepts, two ways of doing it. The first is named clients. Um, So with named clients, you can basically provide a string that represents the name of the client that you want to configure. And as well as naming it, you can also provide it some configuration values. So typically when you create a HTTP client, you'll probably set a base address on there. You might set some default headers on there, which are correct for every request you're making to that endpoint. Um, And so when you create this named client, for example, you might create one for talking to GitHub and in there, you can pass in the base address for github.com and any headers that you need to talk to their APIs, for example. Um, and then when you want to get an instance of that particular named client, you just do the create client, but this time you give it the name that you want. So it's a it's a kind of quick way to get up and, up and running with these kind of individual configurations for clients, and you can create as many of those as you want. Each of them gets registered with DI, and then you just, just ask for it when you need it. Um, I'm not a massive fan of that approach. I think it's a nice way to get going, but I've I sort of it starts throwing magic strings into the picture, and then you start thinking about how you manage the names of those clients and um, and getting the right ones. So I'm, I'm much more of a fan of their their typed client feature. Um, and so with the typed clients, this is kind of starting to move towards a pattern where you're actually building these much more rich uh, classes that actually represent doing some work with an endpoint rather than maybe just uh, using HTTP Client Factory to get access to the clients themselves, you're actually starting to take advantage of this wrapping. And so with a type client, you just define a class, uh, maybe we'll call it a GitHub service. Um, and in that, in the constructor, you can just ask for a HTTP client to be injected into you. And if that's all you need to do in the service, then you can start operating against that HTTP client as if it's been injected into you. Um, and then to register these we just call that add HTTP client again, but now there's a, a generic method that we can call and we pass it the type that we want to use. so all, that service that we've created for example would be passed in there um, and you also register that as a, a transient service with the DI framework and then that all gets hooked up for you. So then whenever you ask for an instance um, of that service it will get instantiated, but it will also get a HTTP client injected into it um, and it can start using that for its operations. And where that starts to get really interesting is around kind of encapsulating the service logic. So you're typically talking to known endpoints um, on your service. And you, and rather than just exposing sort of this overall kind of send async method, as you'd probably call from um, the HTTP client, we can actually start shaping methods around what the interactions are that we're doing with that service. So it might be um, list pull requests from GitHub, for example, you might have a list pull request method um, and that will use the the handler that you've been given access to uh, in that class to do that. Um, and, and you can expose that HTTP client if you want to from that type service or you can kind of entirely encapsulate it inside in a, in a private member and then just expose the endpoints as methods basically that you can call from your consuming code.
0: On the on the type clients, are you referring to any type of inheritance here? When you say I've got a type client of a HTTP client, uh, yes.
1: Yeah, so the the sort of the service or the the type that you're defining doesn't actually need to inherit from anything. Um, it just needs to have HTTP client in, injected in in its in its constructor, um, and then as long as it's registered with the the client factory, then when you ask for one of those, it will it will bind it all up for you correctly.
0: With HTTP clients, testing it has been a bit of a pain um in the past i've seen kind of two ways one was to mock out the http client handler with something like mock and the other was to use the um http client interception library from JustEat. what's the story now with uh, HTTP client factory uh
1: to some respect it's the same set of options so you can still do the whole kind of mock your handler and, and and pass that in if you're going the typed client route, then I think your life gets a bit easier because now you could you can have an interface for your whatever service you're creating that's actually kind of essentially wrapping h t t p client um and then you can just uh you can mock the methods that you're putting on there so if if you've got a you know get pull requests from github method um and that's defined on your interface then you can have that return whatever you want in your mocking framework and i think that's that's how i anticipate using it i think once it's out sort of in release um i'm sort of just starting to introduce it in a what will be a production system already i'm totally ignoring the advice of the team and, and going going right it's ready it's preview two. it's good enough um and so I, I think i'll be sort of testing out what scenarios work best but i, I see the kind of the wrapping of type services most likely the, the way i'll be going um, and i think just being able to kind of mock those out will be nice and easy then
0: do you see people using uh, so we talked about HTTP handlers as being part of the the, the lower level the harder uh, the harder to build piece would is there ever a reason to have different types of handler for different types of requests uh,
1: yes, um, so it, it depends what you need to do, but um, there's commonly going to be some kind of cross cutting concerns around requests that you're making to to endpoints. Um, there may be an example I've kind of come up with recently is if you want to talk to an endpoint that always expects an API key on the headers, for example, um, it makes no sense to send any requests to that endpoint if that head is missing. Um so one of the things you can actually do and you could you could always do this with HTTP client is you could create a delegating handler um, and then use that as the first part of essentially outgoing middleware on your request um, to the to the service that you're calling. And so you could register one of these delegating handlers with a, a validation step in there that says actually, if this request doesn't have API key on the headers, just return a maybe a, an error uh, back to the caller and don't even bother making the actual HTTP request. We know it's not going to go through. And so you can just kind of start to to avoid that loop of calling out the things when you know certain situations aren't already set up correctly. Um, and as I say, you could, you could create delegating handlers and register them yourself when you create your clients in the past, but it was never a particularly, I don't think it was a particularly well-used feature. Um, You know, um, most people probably weren't even necessarily aware it was there as an option because it was never really that well documented Um, with HTTP client factory. The team have done a good job of making that more of a kind of first class citizen, a first class approach to um, how you want to set up these outgoing pipelines. So now when you're registering those clients in the configure services, so you can call add HTTP client and, and name it, say GitHub. Uh, you get back an IHTB client builder, and on there there's various extension methods, and one of those is to to add these handlers. Uh, so you can create your own delegating handlers and register them there. Um, if you've got sort of specific cross-cutting concerns that you know about, um, what's more likely now is to to look at something like Polly. So Polly's sort of a, a fault tolerance, sort of resilience library for .NET that's that's proving very popular. Um, and certainly something that I've used in many, many projects now because it just creates a really nice, easy way to do things like retries or retries with circuit breakers, um, which is a common thing you're going to want to do when you're talking to external services. Uh, those services may go down, may um, you be know, various faults that you have to handle, and poly is a really good way of dealing with those. But traditionally, I would kind of configure those policies somewhere and then wrap all of the requests I was making um, in those, those policies that were defined by Polly, um, What the team have done is actually talk to uh, Polly, um, And so I know Dylan and Joel, who work on the Poly side, have been talking to uh, Glenn and Ryan from the SBNet team to kind of coordinate their activities. And, and we now have a really nice integration pattern through HTTP Client Factory to registering these policies. Um, and what it's going to do is, is they are essentially going to become wrapped in a delegating handler, so they're going to get wrapped as part of this middleware, outgoing middleware pipeline, um, for you. But just by calling extension methods. So again, when you're adding that HTTP client configuration at the start, you can add these chain of of um, sort of poly handlers to the to the uh, to the flow that you want to have, and those will then get applied to every request that's going through through that um, HTTP client. That when you get handed it
0: back. So in the interests of full disclosure, both you and I were involved in the uh, the GitHub discussions around Polly's inclusion, along with Dylan and others, we, I contributed in a very minor way, I know you were more involved. And again, full disclosure, I'm an author of a Pluralsight course on Polly. But to go back to, um, to Polly on this, in this case, Um, One of the things that I was concerned about and they have addressed was the idea with poly-integration and making requests that you don't end up using the same policy on all requests. And the the problem being a a policy that's suitable for a GET, let's say retried three times, is not necessarily suitable for a POST because of idempotence. So how did they handle um, that, being able to choose different policies for different types of requests?
1: yeah, so when you're when you're doing the configure services piece and you you're adding your HTTP client, you get that HTTP client builder back and on there you basically you basically get a delegate where you get access to the request message um, and, and you can inspect that message for, for example, the method that's being called on there and apply different policies depending on that. So, Um, A typical pattern might be to define all of your policies up front, those different maybe retry policies or different timeout policies, for example, that you may need to apply. And Then when you're actually adding that handler in, you can say, well, if this is a request method, I want you to apply this, otherwise I want you to apply this Um, it's quite hard to describe in in audio but um they've sort of got this really nice simple pattern now where you just you know based on inspecting that request you can can make these determinations about what policies are correct for for those particular situations Um, and of course you can you can register different policies with these these different named um, http clients that you're defining as well so if you've got different requirements for different endpoints perhaps you know one particular endpoint you talk to often is regularly down for a long period of time because of certain um maybe maintenance that they do you may want to you know apply a a slightly less optimistic retry policy there that's got a longer wait period or something that you or you may want to apply a circuit breaker pattern on top of that to to avoid kind of continually trying to hit that service when you know it's not going to be there
0: i was just going to raise that which is a for people who have maybe used Polly, um, you can have the concept of wrapping policies. So a retry wrap by a circuit breaker wrap by a fallback is all that still uh, available with this new methodology. Yeah, so you can kind of you can either do it the kind of more traditional way that you have been used to
1: by creating a policy wrap, and then that can be the, the the thing that you pass in as your as the policy you want to use for a particular client. Um, but you can also just kind of chain um, chain these handlers together, so you can add layers of handlers to uh, each named client and then they're just going to get executed in order so you could have you could first add a retry policy and then add a circuit breaker policy separately and you're essentially getting that same behavior Um, you just need to make sure you get the ordering correctly there so the first one in your list is going to be kind of the most outgoing or or the outermost handler so it will get the request first and it will get the response last on the way back in and so you know, with poly the ordering of those policies does matter in order to get the behavior that you're actually expecting um, so depending on how familiar you are if you've already got you know all these policy wraps defined that have all of the behavior you want you might just want to register that um, in a sort of single place and apply it through one um, handler um, one other thing the team has done there that's quite nice as well just to make this really easy is one of the extensions for adding these policies in is just called um, add transient http error policy uh, and that's where you then pass the policy you want to use. And that's already set up to handle common common known failures. So it'll be sort of 500 status codes or um, sort of HTTP request exceptions coming back. It will look for those common things that are assumed to likely be a transient fault um, and set up the policy to apply when those scenarios are met, um, giving you the opportunity to do sort of different handling. If you get a 400, for example, you might, you might want to do something different. You might not want to keep retrying that if it's purely that you're talking to the wrong endpoint.
0: One of the very useful things I found with um, with poly retries was if I got back an unauthorized, I could execute a delegate to perform some sort of reauthorization and then make my request. So, is it possible to execute delegates from within the whole HTTP client factory?
1: Uh, I believe it. I think it is still possible to kind of do all of the things you've done before. I think you just got to make the consideration around, you know, is that going to be hanging on to something? Uh, and, and sharing something you don't want to share between between calls through that client. So you just have to start thinking about the lifetimes of the things that you've grabbed there, because um, you may be sharing handlers, you may be sharing the underlying sort of um, delegating handlers that are wrapping these policies and things like that. Um, so I think technically it's all there and possible. You just need to sort of have the same considerations you normally would with Polly around um, kind of sharing things between requests and assuming they're all gonna function in the way you you would want them to.
0: Yeah, because what we're used to with poly is that it's thread safe. You can have a policy being executed on 100 requests simultaneously and they're all fine. But delegates, you have to handle yourself. That's one of the big warnings with Polly. Yeah. So another question on um, discriminating or picking the policy that you might want to use. So we discussed already that you, if you're doing a post, you'll, you can have a particular policy for posts. Maybe it's not going to perform retries necessarily um, because of idempotence. Or if it's a get, it'll do something. But what if I've got, let's say, um, endpoint A and endpoint B, and I uh, endpoint A very suitable for caching, but endpoint B completely not suitable for caching? Yep. Can I apply different policies to the same verb on the same remote server but different endpoints? So I'm
1: not 100% sure. Um I believe looking at the APIs it's it's there you'll get access to the HTTP request message and you can expect, inspect values on there in the kind of the funk deliver that you've got um to handle applying these policies. Um I think it's one of those cases that you'd want to kind of test that out again in each each scenario. You're probably more likely I think to to want to create different named or typed clients for some of these scenarios so that you you're being very specific about this clients uh, this client's flow um, I think as soon as you start sort of throwing lots of different conditionals into whether you're mapping one policy or another it might start getting quite confusing um, when you're calling those clients uh, you're not necessarily going to know what it's going to do underneath you um, whereas having perhaps a different named client might be a little bit more uh, clear to to people that are consuming it.
0: So then you'll end up with a pretty much a library as you say of of named clients the the, the client for service, friend endpoint A, the client for endpoint B, or the client for endpoint A, and then the client for all the others, perhaps. Maybe you've only got one or two endpoints. Um, then you can also, of course, just continue using poly as you used to. You can put your poly code around the HTTP request, I imagine, within, let's say, your your method that makes the request. You don't necessarily have to put it as part of the factory.
1: That's it yeah yeah so if you've got sort of request specific policies that you want to apply more more granularly then yeah you can still use that in the same way as you did before, um, and kind of get the the full power of poly through either the delegated flow or through the um, sort of the individual request flow.
0: Well Steve, thank you very much for your time. Have you got any final notes for us before we wrap up for today?
1: Uh, I'll point people at my blog, which is stevejgordon.co.uk. Um, so I've sort of done three parts on HTTP Client Factory so far. Uh, a couple of those were when it was in its more early phase of development, and the more recent is um, uh, sort of now we're into preview two. And I've just sort of finished work on part four, which will be a more in depth look at uh, Poly. And I'm sure I might add to it now with some of your questions as I kind of dig in a bit further into the, the details there. Um, I know Scott Hanselman's just done a post, so um, I think his blog will be um, easily findable for people um, on Google. Um, he's done a sort, of, a, a sort of intro Poly integration piece. And I know um, Joel and Dylan have done a kind of really good update to their wiki as well on the, on the Poly project on GitHub, uh, which kind of talks about the, the Poly side of the integration. I know they've got some diagrams there about thinking about, you know, the order you're applying your policies in the, in, in the handlers so that you're getting the expected behavior um and sort of dealing with that in the in the correct way so i'm sure they'll build that out as well as there's more things come online
0: i'll put links into of course your own blog the handsome man the Polly, the all the bits and pieces that we referred to today well steve gordon thank you very much for your time this morning thank you very much i really enjoyed it if you like this episode you might also like episode 71 with dylan reisenberger all about the Polly project can take. The opening music was a return by Nisi 23 from the album 11 and 12 and the closing music was Night Owl by Broke for Free from the Directionless EP.